You're listening to Source Daily. Join us Monday through Friday to stay up to date with what's happening in North Central Ohio. We'll be sharing a closer look at one of our top stories, along with other news, local history, memorials, answers to your questions, and more. Today, we're sharing a conversation between Source Media CEO Jay Allred, Downtown Mansfield CEO Jennifer Keim, and Richland County Commissioner Tony Barrow. Before we begin, a quick message from our friend and sponsors at the Area Agency on Aging. Help fight COVID-19 with the updated booster available this fall. The Area Agency on Aging can connect you and your loved ones to essential vaccines. Call your local Area Agency on Aging today at 419-524-4144. This project is funded by the U.S. Administration for Community Living through a grant with U.S. Aging. The contents do not necessarily represent the views of U.S. Aging, ACL, or the U.S. government. Call today, 419-524-4144. Now, part one of a conversation between Jennifer Keim and Tony Vero, moderated by Source Media's Jay Allred. Hi, everybody. My name is Jay Allred. I'm the CEO of Source Media Properties, and I am your host today for a very special episode of Source Daily. I am joined today by two folks who are figures in redevelopment and preservation in Mansfield specifically, but Richland County in general. And we're going to have a conversation today about broadly the idea behind what is preservation and what is progress how do we do development in the rust belt and the opportunities and obstacles that face our community as we move into what could be a very exciting next decade in terms of development and economic development here in Mansfield and Richland County for a lot of different reasons. I am joined today by Jennifer Keim the CEO of Downtown Mansfield Incorporated and Commissioner Tony Vero, who is a Richland County Commissioner. And I want to just open the floor to you, to both of you, and I'll start with you, Jen. Um, Tell me a little bit about how you came to the work that you're doing now and why you've chosen to do it for the amount of time that you have. It wasn't really intentional. It wasn't kind of my original career path. I ended up here in a stopover between Chicago and and New York City. And while I was here, I was exploring some opportunities and became involved in downtown businesses and and marketing in downtown businesses. I had done similar work in um, Chicago while I was there, working with small businesses, and just began to love it. And as I settled in in the first year or so, just realized that there was so much opportunity here. And I'm from here originally from Mansfield. And so I've always heard stories about how great Mansfield was and, you know, our family's history here and just the opportunity to kind of give back and reinvest and see it through its next phase was really exciting to me. And I have been doing this for over 20 years now, which seems impossible to me. No day is the same. No year is the same. The challenge moves. The, the the progress moves. The finish line moves all the time. So the work changes constantly, which makes it really fun. And as I became kind of more invested in those early years, what became important to me was really providing the children who are growing up here with the same level of pride in Mansfield that we had. Um, and I think... It's an important part, and when we work, when I do my work in preservation and community development, I think about that a lot. And being from a place you can be proud of is something that you take with you your whole life. And so, one of my goals has always been to just create that sense of pride in the community. Tony, I'll throw it to you. Tell me a little bit about how you came to the work that 
you are doing now. I know that in our conversations over the years, you emphasize the fact that you're, you approach your job as a public servant, not as a politician. This wasn't uh, a role that you had played in your whole career. So tell us maybe a little bit about where you were before you were Commissioner Tony Vero and how you decided to take that step into public life. So I'm originally from uh, Canton, worked in the private sector in Shelby, ArcelorMittal, always had an interest in public service. I get it, a politician call him public servant. Um, and I was that kid who always ran for student council in uh, school, definitely that kid. Um, Back then it was vote Vero, he'll be your hero, uh, even though my name is pronounced Vero. That is um, a great slogan. Uh, well, oddly enough, I didn't win for fourth grade uh, homeroom president. I lost to, and I still remember it, uh, Matt Spittler and uh, Sean Cochran Damn, because Matt, they Matt passed Spittler. out bubble gum and they had stick with uh, Spittler and Cochran. And I couldn't <laughs> compete with bubble gum with vote Vero. So you can't. Um, always had an interest in public service. Never had any direct idea how I would get there. I think if you have a specific idea in mind, you close yourself out to other doors. 2016, the opportunity to run for commissioner uh, came available. I was a Lexington council person. Marilyn John at the time, I'd worked with her husband at Middle, had reached out to me, uh, said, hey, look, there's an opportunity to run for commissioner. You're probably not going to win. Um, and of course, Jen Kime didn't even vote for me in 2016. So that's correct. That's I also correct. Uh, and I, you know, my friends don't even vote for me. Actually, uh, Bob didn't vote for me and Aurelio didn't vote for me. So really out of our core group of friends, only one of them voted for me, um, which is awesome. And, uh, you know, we got a little lucky. We worked very, very, very hard. I think uh, for those people who saw our team out there, uh, we worked extremely hard and look, obviously, not going too political here, certainly helped by the Trump red wave. Mm-hmm. So I think it was a combination of uh, the red wave in 2016 and, and knocking on myself. I knocked on 4,000 doors and our team got to over 10,000 doors. The thing that I remember about that election, about your election in particular, was that our former employee, Emily Deck, got one of the greatest election night pictures I think I've ever seen. You were leaping into the arms of Cliff Mears, I believe. It was Daryl, but yeah. It was, it, yeah. It was, it, you, were not a, you were not a particularly large man, and, and so <laughs> there was definitely a, 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 a leaping into the arms kind of a vibe of that picture, but it was so genuine and authentic in terms of like when you knew you won, you were excited that you won. And I'll just, I'll always have that picture in my head because it was something that, um, it really stuck with me. How did the two of you get to know each other and how did you come to work together? Cause I know that over the years you've now come to work together pretty closely on a lot of different projects. We have. So, um, I think, you know, as, as commissioner Vero says here, I did not vote for him and I didn't know him very well, but people who do know us, you know, <clears throat> separately, would think that we're very different, and we really are. Our approach to life is different. There are very few ways that we are similar. So when we began working together, it it happened as bad as you can imagine. I mean, he was like a bull in the china shop, and (laughs) 
I was like, no, 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 no. So um, we had a couple interactions to begin with. He joined my board at DMI. And on the first day, he walked in and I said, welcome to the board. We're so glad to have you here. And he said, be careful what you wish for. I'm here to shake things up. And that <laughs> it was oh, so the, such a good way to get uh, started. There's, there's debate about it that. Was, it absolutely happens. Uh, I, I will go to my grave saying I did not say that. And if I did, which I didn't. Uh, it was certainly sarcastic. It, so it was neither of those, but it's okay. <laughs> it was all right. I was, I mean, it was actually kind of endearing to me because, you know, you want that kind of passion and you want that kind of involvement. And I really welcomed having someone involved in downtown development that had a passion for it. And so I didn't take it that way. I took it like, okay, we're probably going to be friends because just knowing that we both were very passionate people from the get go. And then. The second kind of origin story of our friendship was at a meeting, a community meeting, where we were. there was breakout groups involved. And he and I were in a similar breakout group, and the discussion was basically challenges in the community and, you know, what's holding Mansfield back? And Tony starts off with saying public schools. The public schools are holding the community back. There was a lot of talk at that time about the public schools holding, this was years ago, holding the community back and attracting new employers and new employees and I having students in the district had seen a lot of really recent great successes there and so I took I took maybe I took it a little too personally perhaps and um, really used as an opportunity to try to enlighten Tony on a couple of the progress points occurring again I think we have differing uh memories about that. Would Do you I w- agree that these events happened? <laughs> I mean, I'm still not on the you first one. You were in the same room. Uh, the second one was not, I had been coming out of meetings with um, major local employers and we were talking about competing with Columbus. And the talk from employers was, hey, we're competing with Powell and New Albany and um, to attract professionals you know, uh, you know. Let's use a doctor for example, and I'm not saying Ohio Health or Avita was saying this, but hey, they're looking at schools, and you know, we need all of our. We we want doctors and their wives or professionals to come up here and say, hey, these are places um, in Mansfield that we want to send our kids. And I was saying, so that's something we as a community. It wasn't pointing fingers. It was just, hey. These are things that employers and prospective employees are talking about. And Jen yelled at me. Uh, and then I went to someone. I was like, hey, what's up with this uh, kind girl here? I thought we were in the circle of trust. Uh, and um, <laughs> so <laughs> I think both things are true, though. Right. I do think. I think at the time, you know, you're coming from Lexington. You don't have a lot of experience with the Mansfield City Schools and what's happening in Mansfield. And, you know, there. I just I felt like the perspective needed to be deepened a little bit about what's happening at the schools. Not that you were wrong in that a strong public school system is important and that in competing with bigger communities, you know, there, there's there's needs to improve. Definitely. But also that there's a pro- there's progress happening, even though it's not completed. And oddly enough, um, we're presently on a school campaign and yeah. the man's like it's you know, it's benefits of getting to know gen- like we have a blast. And again, it wasn't, you know, your commissioner pointing fingers at schools or not. I was just yeah. saying as pr- attracting employees and high level professionals, one of the things they're going to look at is how good are the local school systems. So I think it was, again, 
we didn't know each other mm-hmm. and now we're on a committee together and the, we have a black heck um it's been fun coach jay at Ansel, but you're already seeing us uh disagreeing and <laughs> having varying uh memories of how things happened well i think what you're sort of calling out or or this conversation just as early as it is is really helps people understand and and it calls out for me that the fact that two things can be true at the same time mm-hmm. and that there's room for there's room for duality in the work that we're doing together uh, because i know both of you and have for quite some time and and i can validate that most of your views are would lead one to believe that you would want to spend very little time together. <laughs> and yet, and and yet there's been a there's been a lot of public, very public work that you all have done together. And and that's what I really want to spend the most time on today in terms of the topic that we want to discuss because as I was thinking through a lot of different things that we could approach as a topic that would be interesting to you, but also interesting to our listeners. The one that I settled on where I felt like there was as much, there are most intersections and also the most opportunities to kind of talk about how you can have conflicting views or differing views and actually get to an outcome that moves a ball forward has to do with sort of this, especially in Midwestern Rust Belt communities, this tension that lies between preservation of our history and what we were versus progress toward the thing that we will become, even though that's sometimes an unknown and it is, and it differs, right? And I think that's where I want to spend some time. So we're going to talk a little bit about land use. We're going to talk about redevelopment. We're going to talk about housing and all of this in the context of this kind of broader overall umbrella of how can you balance that tension between preservation and progress. And one of the things that you didn't mention, Jen, in your introduction is that you really, you are a historical preservationist. I mean, this is a thing that you have not only, it's not only a passion of yours, there's education and training that has come along with that. Is that right? I am. I mean, I, you know, there are many, many people who are way better at preservation, know a lot more than I do. So mm-hmm. I, I tend to not try to say that about myself because I, I my knowledge is limited, but, um, it is the foundation of the work I do because I believe that preservation is a unique opportunity. And in a town like Mansfield, especially, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for development. And it's hard. It's hard for me to understand how people don't see that sometimes when we're sitting in downtown Mansfield, surrounded by the success of preservation and the attractions in Richland County that are 90 percent preservation driven. Our economy tourism, local economy has all been driven by preservation successes. So it's hard for me sometimes to see how people are like, I don't like preservation. We're really living in it. We're living in preservation. Let's dig into that for a minute then. Like talk, say more about where you think that tension comes from in turn, especially being a person that has grown up, you grew up in Mansfield, you left Mansfield and then ultimately ended up in a stopover that has stayed has extended for some time now. It's a long layover. <laughs> You've got a long layover <laughs> to the next place. This is very common, actually, among yeah. a lot of folks that are really invested here is that they came back from New York or D.C. or Chicago for a year, and then 25 years later, they're still here. So tell me a little bit about, like, where do you think that tension between 
the preservation of a community's history and the progress of what it might be, where do you think that comes from? I think a lot of it is patience. I think the drive to move quickly is real. And, um, you know, we all want things done fast. We want them done new. We want the lure of something new and shiny and fast is hard to compete with. And that's what preservation ultimately is competing with in a lot of people's eyes is, you know, you've got this vacant building, whatever building it is, we're going to we're going to let this building sit and, you know, just be an opportunity for the future or we could tear it down and plant grass. And the tearing down and plant grass is an action item waiting for a developer or waiting for a new business to come in and renovate the building is a passive it's passive progress so it's hard to see i think for me it's easy to see because again you know i'm in these buildings all the time and i remember what they were like i mean if you and and, and i wasn't here you know in the the 70s and 80s i was you know I, I remember it a little bit i mean i was in reeds a few times and we were downtown but um you know i was younger i don't remember the 70s and the the photos that we've seen for what it looked like. And at the time of redevelopment in the late 80s, there were two options on the table. One was, let's just demolish most of the downtown and let's build a mall. And that's the urban renewal proposal. And then, you know, the one we went with was the preservation and carousel, although that one required a lot of demolition too. Mm -hmm. Because preservation in itself doesn't mean you can't can't demo anything. It's it's targeted, and you're looking at opportunities, and so that's what we chose, and and you see those successes, and even places like the Reformatory, Kingwood Center, I mean, all of these places are lively, really gems of the community, and they're all because people preserved the history there and then grew a new opportunity. It's also not about creating like time capsules. It's a living environment. It doesn't. It doesn't. It, it it needs to interact with the community in new ways that makes it function. The Reformatory is a great example. It. No one was saving it to be a prison. No one was like, hear me out, guys. Let's wait until we need a prison and let's keep it. It was like, this building is amazing and it's an opportunity. We could do great things. No one was thinking we'd have incarceration out there. But here we are. And look at all the economic income that, income, income impact that comes from that. So the thing that I, the thing that struck me about what you had just said was, and the note that I took was, that doing almost anything at all is action and waiting, which is maybe the only other thing that you can do is sort of a, is viewed as passivity, right? Mm -hmm. Um, There's this tension between patience and speed. I've known very few public servants who have worked with the level of urgency (laughs) that you work. Commissioner Vero, <laughs> you have a bias toward action. And I think everyone that knows you or works with you, whether they have voted for you or not, <laughs> will agree to that. So tell me about the tension between preservation and and progress through from your perspective as a person that likes likes a good action item. Tell me a little bit about where you think that tension between those that want the buildings to be that the way that they are and they just want them to to wait and that inherent sort of baked in Tony Vero-ness of let's do some stuff. <laughs> okay. Um, so I think you see why she's called Holly History. Um, I mean, that was a textbook, historian preservationist answer. I think that's like page three 
in the textbook. You can look it up on Khan. <laughs> I mean, it is sure. she is yeah. something else with buildings. Um, <laughs> I would agree. Um, you know, it's funny. The public says we want action, we want action, we want action. And I say, okay, we're going to do action. And then I end up becoming friends with, uh, you know, the building saver. And um, so we'll use Westinghouse as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good example. All right. Admittedly. Certainly a big one. Beautiful building. Okay. As Jen says, you know, sometimes waiting is okay. All right. So we're not going to bring everyone behind the curtain of the many heated discussions we had about Westinghouse. But notably, you ended up together. We did. My message or talking points to Jennifer was or were, you know, we've waited 32 years uh, and I get it. But the building was at a point from my point of view that the cost to save it was extensive. And I agreed. It was a gorgeous building. Okay. But I also felt to me, it was symbolic in this community. I'm not from here, but now I'm coming on 20 years here. And all I heard was look at Westinghouse, look at what we used to be, you know, and look at building, look how, look how terrible that building looks. And I felt right, wrong, or indifferent. And some people listening could say, hey, you should have. Maybe we could have. But, you know, cost to save that building, you're looking at 10 to 15 million minimum. I mean, what you also had some environmental issues. Uh, you had issues because it was an older building and ventilation. It was very difficult in my mind to save it. So I was like, we needed to symbolically get it down. And my friend Jennifer may have disagreed a little bit. So I said, okay. If we get the building down, then you come up with an idea to uh, remember it. And her and Alan Wigton, the uh, history mafia, came up with a wonderful idea, which is to commemorate what the building was. We preserved part of the building. Uh, the, The commissioners approved a pretty significant expense to cut out the archway of the building to to save that and we're going to have a beautiful arch that will uh where we can remember the history while also we believe work together as we are doing to turn the site back into life so um man you should have heard some of those debates i just remember going not doing not doing anything is doing something you know i'm like we've been not doing anything for 32 years so we're sitting there yelling at each other at relax or you know where you'd see us uh, at someone's house i mean basically all the time we we that was a tough one i mean it, it really was admittedly i mean it was um you see buildings like that all throughout the midwest who that are repurposed into really exciting projects and the, the new projects are, are amazing and people go there to see them and they have that that tint to the industrial past. And so there is real opportunity in a building like that. <laughs> I mean, it exists because you can see it. So, you know, that does happen. So it was tough for me. And I remember even as, even as it started to come down, people were like, oh, my gosh, it's so exciting. And I was just like, it breaks my heart. It, I mean, watching it being torn down, it, it was it was hard for me. But I, at the end of the day, first of all, none of this is about me and how I feel anyway. It's about the community and what's best for the community. And so when you look at projects like that, you have to really take everything in, in, into, into account. And there was a unique opportunity with funding, which I think was really the catalyst in the end for it because if there hadn't been funding for it it would have been a longer and more complicated discussion not that we would have ended up any differently or not but there was funding for demolition and and the other part of it was even though there was this opportunity that existed for redevelopment 
expensive, but it still existed. There was also a good part of the community that felt like it standing there was sort of, it, it, it made them remember a bad time. It made them remember what was, and it kind of it kind of connected us to the industrial past that left in a negative way. Right. And it was super visible because it was so enormous mm-hmm. and right downtown. So I think you couldn't ignore that part of the community's feelings towards the building itself. And, and the building being demolished did signal progress for people. So, you know, you got to weigh all that stuff when you're looking at it and and then and then look at what's the best interest of the community as a whole you know where are we going with it what if we what if we continue to do nothing what happens to this land and you know because of the site control opportunities there was a real opportunity for long-term development that, that was exciting and and tony and i are still working now with with climbing, we're actually, you know, just working through the next potential phases of some of this stuff, and it's super exciting. So it was tough, but I think at the end, you got to weigh all those things together. You know, one of the things that I learned as we did the reporting on that, on kind of that saga of who owns the building today and why hasn't been anything been done with it and what's going to happen next. Something that I learned during that that I didn't understand was this idea that you just referenced of site control. And for our listeners who are not county commissioners, nor are they historic preservationists and um, involved in downtown improvement associations, can can you guys talk a little bit about how central and important the concept of site control is for a city and in terms of development and maybe if you have an example of where a city has a city like Mansfield has had site control and what they've been able to do with it because I think sitting as a resident of Mansfield whether I live in the ward where the former Westinghouse building was or I am like I am a longtime resident of the city it doesn't look a whole lot better down there right now it looks different but I wouldn't argue, I would not argue that it looks any better. But the thing that we've, I want to talk a little bit about site control because it's intangible. You can't see it. You don't know what it is. But why is it so important for the redevelopment of a site like that? I mean, site control in all the work I do is like the most important thing. You know, basically it's who, it's who owns the property. So in Westinghouse, is a great example, but there's a million others of great ideas for projects in downtown or in the neighboring n- neighboring communities or Westinghouse. And the ideas can't come to fruition until the property owner and the ownership is on board with it. So you either have, you know, controversial site site control ownership issues. You have out of town owners and investors who don't care at all, you know, or you can access site control and you can take ownership or have, you know, um, community ownership and projects, and then you have ways to move forward. When I first came into downtown, that was one of the first major problems we had in 2001. So these buildings downtown were owned by out-of-town property owners. And then during the mortgage crisis, a lot of commercial buildings got packaged in to commercial packages and sold off in chunks. We couldn't find owners. So one of the important things we do is locate owners and find f- find connections there so that when we have projects and ideas, we know how to move forward and can move forward. And people don't get that. It's complicated. People come to us with these ideas for these projects they want to do on these buildings. And it's like, 
but who owns the you don't own the building like property ownership is real and it's funny to me because in downtown it and in projects like this it just shows how invested the community they're so invested they forget they don't own it they feel like the community owns it but they don't remember there's actually owners that own this property how did that play out with Westinghouse? Like, talk to us a little bit about like how fractured the site control was at Westinghouse, and give us a, give us the state of play for it now. From my perspective, site control was why the site became so run down. To me, site control is why we had to do it. Uh, we had three different sets of owners and within one set there was multiple owners so you had a local ownership family who was wonderful to work with uh who inherited the building right they didn't buy it they inherited jennifer you want to talk about how you become friends and partnerships and relationships jennifer was unbelievably instrumental she knew the local owners i didn't jennifer had her look if i'm the local owners why is some politician want to sit down with me and try to get me to give him the building and I, you know, I'm going, Jen, you got to help us here. So uh, Je- you would talk about friendships and relationships, Westinghouse. I mean, I mean, we work on a ton of things together. Then I've told you part of the story and if listeners have heard some of it, I'm sorry. We had a for- an offshoot, you know, Electrolux, mm-hmm. Westinghouse. I just spent one day, several hours just cold calling different people, Googling uh, going to the treasurer's office, who's paying the, this bill? We had another property across the street, and I was able to get a front desk person in North Carolina going, who? Wait, Mansfield, Ohio? And I, I mean, they hated me calling him. I mean, it's, I just, I like, give me a live body. Hours. So you had a North Carolina owner. And then the group that owned the big concrete parcel, we were able to track someone down California to Minnesota and because you didn't have site control you had all parties you had out of town out of state owners who this wasn't their attention uh, the fact you had three different owners that was why part of the reasons why the site became what it was because you didn't have everyone in this case Richland County moving in the same direction so I was saying the reason why the site is or how it became that way was why we wanted site control so what's the state of play with the site now? Do we have, like, have we achieved the state of local control and it's all owned by the city of Mansfield at this point or the land bank? How, talk to our listeners about, like, where what's the state of play with the land now? The land bank, uh, land bank has ownership or an LLC of the land bank, Cozy Glow, which was a... Hey, uh, look at her smiling over there. Uh, the, the heat lamp made uh, by Westinghouse. Uh, so basically, long story short, Land Bank owns all the parcels that came in under the demolition. You still have the building across the street, which a lot of people, I think, got confused. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh, they're going to tear down the building where I had my prom. Right. No, that building's still there. That's a commerce center. But the the 14 acres, the little three-tenths of an acre parcel in which the building actually sat and the property across the street are now the land banks. We have complete local control of those parcels. And, I mean, as Tony was saying, he was relentless <laughs> in getting site control. Relentless. I mean, that is where his personality traits really shine. 
<laughs> because he is goal oriented and relentless. And when we realized, okay, this is a possibility for this building, but what good is it? I mean, we could tear down Westinghouse, like, okay. And then you have this tiny, like, it's not the biggest piece. The biggest piece was the dump that was next to it but because of terrible demolitions and things that had been done in the past. And, and that's where really the complicated part was. So similar to what I was doing in the early 2000s, just calling people and trying to track down some, nobody cares. They don't know they own it. They don't care that they own it. And if you can get a hold of them and say, look, here's what we're looking to, like, this is really important to us. And how do we make this work? A lot of times they're easy to work with. It's the finding them that is really, really tough. The, the Electrolux Council that I finally got to, to show, I mean, they're a big corporation, right? What are they? It's a very small portion. He didn't even know that they owned mm-hmm. the, the property. So he went across the, across the hallway, literally, to the financial guy and said, do we own a parcel in, in Mansfield, Ohio? And, and, and the person fiscal said, I just paid the, the property tax bill last week. I mean, they're, they're in offices next to each other because it's such a big... And that's why we talk about the importance. That it's not that they didn't care. They were paying their bills, mm-hmm. but they didn't care in a sense that they didn't even know they owned it. So I think, you know, as most of us who, you know, if we're fortunate enough to own our own home or maybe we own a couple of pieces of property, um, almost no one can... I, I certainly can't get my arms around owning a piece of property that I don't know that I own. Mm-hmm. Um. And it strikes me about both of your journeys in this is to simply find people that know that they own <laughs> what they own. So true. Um, you know, and, and from like a zoom out perspective, that has to feel to a lot of listeners, and it certainly would to me, like, okay, I don't exactly know how that even relates to me. That is, like that feels like that feels crazy time that someone would own this giant piece of property acres in the middle of a Midwestern city and not even know that they own it. Next to Ohio history, did you know that Helen Austin was a prominent pioneering journalist and horticulturist from Ohio? Austin's writing career included contributions to the agricultural and horticultural press alongside essays and reporting. She was notably active in horticultural circles and wrote extensively on various topics, often supporting philanthropic causes. She was a strong advocate for women's suffrage and other women's issues and an early supporter of the temperance movement. Austin was a life member of the National Women's Indian Rights Association and a member of the American Pomological Society. She passed away in 1921. Now an event that you should know about. It's time to get into the holiday spirit. Tomorrow, starting at 5.30 p.m., head to Richland Carousel Park in Mansfield for the annual tree lighting ceremony, carriage rides, live reindeer, photos with Santa, food, music, and a whole lot more. Bring your family and friends and get ready to have fun. Finally, we'd like to take a moment to remember the life of Scott Laughlin. Scott was born in Kingsport, Tennessee in 1936. His journey led him to Vermilion in 1950. He proudly graduated from Vermilion High School in 1955 before serving as a jet engine mechanic in the Air Force from 1953 to 1957. During his time in the military, he earned a degree in aircraft and engine electronics from the University of Maryland. Upon completing military service, he relocated to Mansfield, where he initially worked as a manager with Cervex Electronics. Later, he transitioned to a fulfilling role at the Richland County Sheriff's Department. Seeking a new challenge, he ventured into the insurance business, eventually establishing his own independent agency, from which he later retired. He was preceded in death by his son, 
Scott is survived by his cherished children, lovingly referred to as the Brady Bunch, 13 grandchildren, and two great-grandchildren. Thank you for taking a moment to celebrate and remember Scott's life and service. You can submit an obituary for free on Richland Source. To learn more, click the link in our show notes or visit richlandsource.com slash obituaries slash submit. Thanks for listening. Join us again tomorrow. Also, make sure to head over to richlandsource.com and click the Be a Member button to help support independent local journalism that informs and inspires. Every contribution goes to helping us make Richland County a better place and to help keep our journalism free. Also, if you like this podcast and want to hear more, make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. 